Welcome to Just a Phase, a podcast about modern parenting. This is episode four, Family Therapy. Just in time for the start of the holiday season, aka extreme extended family time. We go behind the scenes with a family therapist to find out how it works and what to expect if you decide that you and or your family should go to therapy. And we're going to talk about all the fun and crazy stuff happening in this world today. Uh, talking with our kids about refugees and terrorism and that hard stuff. Um, and then, you know, the terrors at home, like bringing a kid into a new room and school pictures and craziness like that. So let's get this party started. Greg, uh, father to three daughters, nine, six, and four, humanitarian, comedian, improviser, and um, good-looking guy. <laughs> and I'm Whitney Crispell. I am mom to one-and-a-half-year-old Vivian and the baby that is due in just five weeks from today. Oh, my God. And here is our normal disclaimer. We try not to swear on Just a Phase podcast, and we have done a very good job of it. But this is a show hosted by adults and for adults, and it will be my goal to make Whitney curse once this episode. <laughs> it's very easy. <laughs> I really don't have a great, I really don't have great self-control over that. So, so yeah. How are you, Drew? Life is good. It's been a, uh, a super busy week, uh, and it's been uh, just a, a, a week uh, with some extra craziness. I've, I've been thinking uh, and talking and and doing uh, a whole bunch uh, regarding uh, the the refugee uh, crisis and and the events in, in Paris and in the rest of the world uh, and actually like that's that's still on my my plate for today uh, when this is broadcast it'll be a couple days ago yeah I mean well and you have you have the job as a parent but then also your your professional in your professional world too, you are a person that people turn to. So you definitely have been thinking about it a lot. Um, yeah, I, you know, I'm having one of those moments where, and, and I mean, really throughout my time as a parent so far um, with the, you know, I, you and I are both supporters of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, there have been a lot of opportunities to think about or to think to myself, God, how am I going to explain this to my kid? And I have felt, you know, and, and maybe this is kind of selfish, but I felt almost lucky right now that she's not old enough where she really understands anything because I've been like, you know, but your kids are old enough. What? Are, how are you tackling this? It's crazy. Um, one of the biggest mistakes that I make is listening to talk radio in front of my children. Um, and so just yesterday I was riding in, in the car and she, she was listening to a local host who will remain nameless but she just uh, my oldest daughter just kept saying he is so rude he is so mean why why does he not want what first i had to explain what what muslim people were um uh because we haven't talked all that much about other religions and different religions and but she has friends <laughs> that that are muslim and she's, he he doesn't want them to be here. He wants them to go home. And, and then it was the whole, uh, you know, dealing with anxiety. And it was, well, most people disagree with him uh, and he doesn't have any power. And that's part of what makes him angry. But he can't make anybody go home and nobody's going home uh, or 
going back to the place they came from, like home is here now, right? Um, but uh, he wants to prevent other people from coming here. And she goes, oh, well, that's still very rude. That's still very mean. A smart girl. <laughs> she is a smart girl. Um, it, it's it's not all, and uh, she's smart enough to ask me the the million dollar question is why do you listen to this guy? Um, and I didn't have a good answer for that. Yeah, I, that's I, I can see that being something that I need to work on too because I tend to when when there is something going on, I to, I tend to totally binge on. For me, it's all it's also like radio. I don't have the TV on often, but I but. You know, if it was a major enough event, I would like on, you know, the Friday of the Paris attacks, I actually turned on my TV and just watched it for an hour. And it's like, I got the basic info. Why am I just staring at the screen? And and especially for children. Yeah, it might be but if a you, good idea to just turn, turn it off. If you enjoy media that doesn't work for children, I would say, like, drink it up now. Um <laughs> Okay. When, when my youngest uh, arrived at my house, uh, she came as a foster child, so she was 11 months old when she showed up, but still not old enough to really know what was going on, and it was my day off from my, uh, my job is on Friday, so like I would spend all Friday with her, but she was a baby, so she didn't do a lot, so that was like Breaking Bad marathon day for me. That's true. And I, I can't did. watch Breaking Bad with my no. children anymore. No. I, I miss did. that. Yeah. I did watch some questionable material with Viv while she was nursing. Yeah. And yeah. She has no yeah. clue. No. No clue. But yeah. I mean, so I actually posted on our um, our podcast Facebook page a link to um, this op-ed in the New York Times written by um, Pamela Druckerman. She's the woman who wrote that book, Bringing Up Bebe, about French parenting from an American mother's perspective. But anyway, she wrote about um, how she and her friends are dealing with explaining this to their kids. And one of the, you know, I mean, there's a lot of good advice in there, and, and, and so you can, you should definitely check it out. Um, but one of the things, one of the suggestions was just to start with your kids' questions. And yeah. I thought that was a really, I thought that was good advice, yeah. just to start with their questions. So uh, continuing with the theme on the show, I haven't read any books about how to do this. But my my general philosophy has been uh, to be honest but gentle. Um, I don't think that there's any real – now I'm just like preaching to you podcast listeners. I don't think it does any good to get scared. Um, so I certainly don't want to scare my kid. So I'm I'm honest that there were some bad people that did, didn't attack, but that most of the people are good and there were a lot of good helpers that responded – and uh, even though things like this scare us, we are still safe uh, where we live and with the people that we live with. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's good. Yeah. All right. Well, moving on. Moving, <laughs> moving on. on. It's uh, w- when this podcast airs, we'll have two days to Thanksgiving. As are you traveling for Thanksgiving? I'm not. I'm, I mean, I'm traveling like 20 minutes to my mother's house, but. That's it. So that's I, good. Yeah, I'm 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 excited for that. I I'm not gonna lie. I think it's gonna be really nice to stay close to home. I have this tradition where I listen to this um, <laughs> this M- NPR public radio show, um, the Splendid Table, which is the source of of the SNL parody, I yes. believe. Yeah. Um. Anyway, she does this amazing show called Turkey Confidential. It's a two-hour live call-in radio show on Thanksgiving morning, and people call in and say like, oh, "I can't fit this, you know, turkey in my oven because I, you know, live in an apartment building. I, whatever. 
I love it. So it's like my tradition. So I'm really thrilled that I get to listen to it in my kitchen. How much turkey <laughs> advice do you need? I don't know. I'm a vegetarian. I don't even eat turkey. Oh, but how do, much do people need in general? Yeah. I still Turkeys are I hard still to cook, know. but I feel like it gets covered completely yeah. every Thanksgiving. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. But yeah, no. So I'm, I'm staying here. How about you? I am going to Pittsburgh, which is a short drive, but it feels like a long drive, especially at Thanksgiving time. Yeah, um, and with kids in the car. Yeah. So what is it, three hours from here? Three and a half, yeah. yeah. I'll get to see my cousins, and my kids will get to see their cousins, and we'll, uh, our my family does Thanksgiving big. Uh, we've got a big family, so uh, we don't fit in Grammy's house anymore. We rent a room from my father's church. and Oh, wow. Yeah, it's big, um, which, you know. That's fun. It's fun. It It's, it's, it's the whole family there and (laughs) so that isn't that is both fun and that is stressful yeah so my family is really really nice that's the downfall of my family we are so considerate and nice to one another that nobody will assert for themselves so it'll be like (laughs) oh well uh someone else wants yams so i'll make yams okay but well, what if somebody else wants to do this? What about this? What about this? Could we do this? And nobody ever says what they want. Everybody tries to guess what everybody else wants and tries to do for them. And we get paralyzed making the smallest of decisions. Yeah, you need like a decision maker. I was almost a non-gentle parent once <laughs> because I had to buy pizza for my family. And, and like it was like the extended family. So like we were all like pitching in. And, like, it was the end of my family bowls on holidays. We're weird, right? Um, I don't know why we bowl. Like, I think it happened once, and then someone decided it was a tradition. It's a good tradition. So like we it. all went bowling, and, like, that was stressful because I was chasing toddlers around a bowling alley, right? And then coming home, it was my job to get the pizza, and I got the pizza, and even figuring out how much to order because everyone's looking out for, you know, all that junk, right? And so finally, I, like, get it, and... uh. I ask someone else in the family because I'm trying to be smart and delegate rather than, so I, so I asked, would, would you please dear relative of mine collect the money, you know? And I thought it would just be, Hey everyone, throw some money in the hat for the pizza. But my family decided to do math to be fair. <laughs> so like how many slices did you ask for? How many are you going to eat? This no. is what it costs per slice. Yes. Oh no. I should have just bought the pizza. Oh, no. Next time, I'm going to buy all the pizza. That would drive me crazy. <laughs> yeah. That would drive me crazy. So on, on my show notes, it says that Viv is moving to a new room. Yes. Yeah. So that is something that is... Is this like a big girl bed thing? Definitely big and happening in our lives. Um, no, not a big not a, a, a big girl bed yet. But we... So for lots of reasons, it just makes sense for us to keep the um, the room that she's in, the nursery as a nursery um and then you know keep the baby in there and then move her to to a room across the hall so that's what we're doing we're getting ready we just had some wallpaper installed and a new rug and 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 I'm getting there but I've been kind of reading a little bit more online about how to do it in a way that's like (laughs) doesn't make her feel like you know we're kicking her out. Her whole world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have you have you had to move your kids to a room? I mean, maybe it's just not. A, I, I also am going to operate like it's just not that big of a deal. I'm not going to make a huge deal out of it. But if anybody has advice, if it, you know, I could see it being something that like disrupts sleep for a while. I haven't moved kids from one room to another yet. The weirdest thing that I had. So 
I I had foster kids before the kids that I've adopted now. Okay. And we had them back to visit. And and one of the foster kids had uh, has special needs, right? So when he came back to visit, like he couldn't like always articulate everything that was going on, but he went to his old room, which had been rearranged and had someone else living in it now, and he actually like began to like push the furniture back to where it belonged Ooh. for him. Yeah. So like he, he wasn't very stressed out about leaving cause he was returning to his birth mother's house and that was a very good thing, but coming back, like he expected everything to be the same yeah. and it wasn't. Yeah. So hmm. that's, I don't think Viv will push the furniture around no. and move it back. No, I don't think she will quite yet, but we'll see. But yeah, it w- I mean, that just sort of generally fits in our, the theme of our life, which is, you know, and, Oh shit, we're gonna have a baby soon. Like I'm five weeks away. We got you to swear. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even try. No. But we you know, oh my god, this baby is coming really soon. We have to deal with all the logistical things in our life. Um, so yeah, we that's on there. Um, and then, you know, on a much later note, I just <laughs> this morning, right before you came here, I got uh Sean drop Viv off at daycare I think I mentioned she goes to daycare um, a couple mornings a week which is when we have this blissful quiet to record in I love it but anyway she goes to daycare and of course they do like school photos (laughs) and um, we got the proof back of her photo and it's just hilarious I mean I'm sure I find it way more funny because it's my kid but I actually like laughed so hard when Sean texted me a copy of or texted me a picture of the proof um that I drooled on my shirt <laughs> I just thought it was so funny but she just she, like she has this like I, I think she looks like Larry David being like what you know she, so I'll, I'll post a picture of it on there but anyway it made me really excited for this you know part of parenting that I never I, like I didn't really think about which is just these awful school photos like I really hope I mean you're excited hope, for it? I hope when she gets to, like, the awkward phase that they that she looks nice and she feels confident. But from now until, you know, I think, like, what, third or fourth grade, I kind of want her photos to be just horrible. Awful. They're so funny. If experience <laughs> is anything, you won't have to try. <laughs> they will make sure that they're awful. No, for the, my kids, fi- there's... It's taking a natural picture. Like, <laughs> I have to sneak up on my kids to take a picture of them. There's right. no, like... The smile is like their whole face like forces into this. It's it's painful. Yeah. One of my one of my friends whose son is in Viv's class, um, her son's photo, he looks like half asleep. (laughs) And uh, and she told me I, I haven't checked this out yet, but apparently there's a website where you go to actually place the order and then you can get backgrounds. And one of the backgrounds you can get is like your child's head behind their body like you know like those are weird pictures so she's gonna get that one of her son (laughs) with this like really awkward expression and i i got it yeah and i guess there's like an american flag exploding in the background so anyway i'm just really excited about this i think awkward photos are amazing so okay i'm this is (laughs) now i'm gonna have like an old-fashioned rant and be when i was a kid there were pictures once a year and i feel like we now it happens in the spring and in the fall. It's a total money grab. And your I mean, kid is in, like, daycare. There's no... It shouldn't happen no, in daycare. It shouldn't happen at all. It's a total money grab, but whatever. 
And <laughs> I'm gonna be. We all like we don't need professional photographers to set up and we all take pictures of our kids all the time. True, especially with the especially with the phone. But we still get yeah. guilted into ordering yeah. school pictures. Yeah. Now that I'm angry, <laughs> let's talk about family therapy. Um, we sat down with Dr. Keith. Keith Klosterman, who is a family therapist, and we talked about the ins and outs of going to therapy, uh, both as an individual parent and as a couple and as an entire family. Um, and hopefully we asked all the, you know, basic stupid questions you it's might my have specialty. <laughs> about family therapy, but we're afraid to ask. So without further delay, let's get to it. So our guest today is Dr. Keith Klosterman, a New York State licensed and nationally certified mental health counselor. Dr. Klosterman also holds a New York State marriage and family therapy license and has extensive clinical experience working with individuals, couples, and families. Additionally, he teaches in the marriage and family therapy program at Madai College in Buffalo, New York, and is a nationally, internationally recognized expert in behavioral couples therapy for substance abuse. We are so happy to have him on the podcast today to talk about the ins and outs of family therapy. So welcome, Keith, to Just a Phase. We're really happy to have you here. Great. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So let's start with um, the basics. What is family therapy and who goes to it? That's a great question. Family therapy is really designed for, um, initially, I guess it kind of arose from couples therapy, where the couple would come in and then people started recognizing the importance of the system, the family system. Mm -hmm. So it could be the way we define family sort of depends on the configuration. So it could be mom and dad. It could be mom, dad, and the kids. Um, it could just be mom and the kids. Uh, more recently, we've expanded the definition where it could include grandparents. So whoever the, the definition of family has sort of evolved and it's whoever the person thinks or considers is part of that family system, has an emotional connection mm -hmm. with that system. So more so than just a friend. Do, do you get a situation where someone starts off, maybe they start off as an individual parent coming in, and yes. then they decide to add people in? How does that work? Yes. Um, that isn't, that's, <clears throat> sometimes it'll be the, um, the mom or the dad who come in initially, and the presenting issue is something to do with the kids at home. Mm -hmm. And it may benefit the therapist to invite the kids to come into the session to see how the family interacts and to get a more accurate sort of depiction of what typically happens. And also what everybody within the system would like to change. Um, that's a big part of it, too, because when you, once you start working with a family, um, we, use the, we often use the analogy of a mobile. And if we think of a family as a mobile and you touch one part of that mobile, the entire thing ripples, right? And it's the same thing with family. So if you start working with, if one person in the family changes his or her behavior, it's likely to have an impact on everybody else within that system. Mm -hmm. So it's really a more, um, I tend to think of it as a more comprehensive way of looking at issues or problems within, um, within a family context. Like for me, um, I was initially trained as an individual therapist and then did a lot of family work. And because of that, I tend to see things more from uh, a family conceptualization than the individual. So when somebody comes in to see me, I often think these problems aren't happening in isolation. They're happening within the context of the system. And if we can, the more people that we can bring in to work on that, sometimes the better. And can I give you just an example? Yeah, please do. <clears throat> um, I've done a lot of work with school-based family counseling programs. And what that, what's happened is a number of the school districts 
have recognized the importance of involving the family um, in the child's schooling, education, care. So it may be that the child is the, the identified client or identified patient, if you will. So you see what's going on behaviorally and academically, and then when you bring the parents in or you bring in the rest of the family and you see everything else that's going on, you have this moment where you think to myself, to yourself, oh my God, like I'm surprised this kid's doing as well as he or she is, <laughs> given, given everything else that's happening. So, so th- that's why I think that um, working within the family can be a really powerful um, mechanism for change because you know, if you work with the child individually, that's great, and you may see some benefit to it, but many times the child is the least powerful player in that system, mm-hmm. and you're really going to enact change by having the parents involved and getting the parents to do or to try something different. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. I imagine there's some situations where like, there, there's a more powerful person in the system who says, well, it kind of works for me, so oh, yeah. I don't want to do anything different, right? Oh, yeah, that, that's a great point as well. Um, and we often see this with couples as well, where, um, what happens, like maybe one partner's really happy, um, and this is going to sound terrible, but I often see it with the, the males in the relationship where let's say that, um, the male's really happy. Like he's spending all day on Sundays watching football and laying around and doing this. And meanwhile, the partner is taking care of the kids, is doing laundry, is cleaning the house, is doing all these other things. So for him, like, hey, this is great. Like, I have my day to myself, and I get to rest and recharge my battery. And his partner is feeling completely overwhelmed, you know, with all these responsibilities. So sometimes what happens is we see that the important thing when you're working with couples or families is you want to try to understand what each person's goal is and have everybody in the system sort of understand it. What tends to happen is that goals are interrelated. So what I mean by that is that even though they may, they may be different, what we find is that when we start taking care of some of these goals, some of the other things that are happening within the family sort of fall by the wayside. Mm-hmm. If, if I go to family therapy, am I going to have to stop watching football on Sunday? <laughs> it depends what else you do during the week. Or that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I think your, 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 uh, your question, even though I was joking, is a good one in that what we really try to do is to um, understand the individual and each individual's worldview and their perception and perspective. And some of it depends on the theoretical orientation. But like for me, um, I typically will not tell people, you know, what I think they should and shouldn't do. I work with them and collaborate with them to try to find a solution or a goal that makes sense to everybody within the system. Um, I once had a supervisor who described it as leading from behind. You know, so I... I will ask questions to sort of expand people's thinking and to try to get them to to think about something differently. Um, a lot of times, what happens when families come in, they've gotten they're just, we think of them as stuck, right? Mm-hmm. They keep doing the same thing over and over again, and they think if they do more of that and more intensely, things will change. So they're sort of used to doing things a certain way, and if we can expand their thinking or help them come up with alternatives that they could try. They may see they may get different results. Mm-hmm. Do you think that it's worth it still for someone whose partner is not willing to come to therapy? Is it still worth it for them to come and, and work on things? It, it can yes, it can be beneficial. And again, it depends on like in terms of couples, uh-huh. it depends on the level of commitment to the relationship. What we tend to find is that if you push too hard and you say, you know, he's got to be here and he doesn't want to be here, then you're probably not going to get much out of it anyway. But if you take a different approach where 
you, um, and again, this may be model specific, some models, some mm-hmm. family therapy or couples based models may want to see both people together and the therapist may want that as well. But in general, what tends to happen is we'll take whoever is willing to come initially and then, you know, over time we'll revisit, you know, do you think he'd be willing to come in? You know, is it okay if I give him a call, check in, see if he'd be willing to? So it's a very gentle, non-confrontational way to say, hey, would you be willing to try this? You know, and especially if the partner is making progress and achieving her goals, um, if the husband, partner, whoever it is, sees that, it may increase his willingness to to try it out. And that's the way we typically will approach it is, would you be willing to come in for one session, just see what it's about, hear us out? Because there's a lot of, um, sometimes there's a lot of mystery around what actually happens in the therapy process. Yeah. And, I, and, and people's conceptions of it may be based on what they've seen in the popular media or on TV, right. which isn't in my experience, isn't very good. See, I was going to ask yeah. you if you had, if you had seen, ever seen any good examples in popular culture. Of therapy. The only one, the, it's the, the only show that I've seen that I thought um, was pretty close was a show called In Treatment that was on HBO a few years okay. ago. And I think it was based on an Italian show that hmm. they brought over there. Gabriel Byrne was actually the therapist in the show. And it was actually pretty close. It was, um, it was really, it was a neat show. But I haven't seen it other than that. I haven't seen yeah. anything good. Usually what you see is, how does that make you feel? Well, let's go back to, to what you were saying just before that about um, the mystery of yeah. therapy and, and you know, people's resistance because of that mystery. What do you, what do you, what do you think about that? And, uh, and what are some of the biggest myths about, about therapy that hold people back? Or... Yes. Um, I think in terms of, for, for myself, what I try to do is to imagine that I was the person on the other side. And what would I want to know? So for me, and, I, and when I teach students and even when I work with therapists from across the country in terms of training, I will usually stress with them transparency. You know, we're not trying to trick anybody. There's no secret to what we're doing. You know, a lot of it is, well, basically all of it is we're trying to help somebody achieve their goals. And in that process, we want to create a climate or a context where somebody would be willing to do something different because we all know, no, it's cliched, but change is scary for people and even just a little bit of change. Mm -hmm. And if you've been doing something the same way for a very long period of time, and now all of a sudden somebody says, well, I want you to do this differently. You may get some pushback. So I think sort of um, explaining why you're asking somebody to do that and also to follow that person's perceptions, culture, like understand what does change mean for this person according to his or her worldview. I know what change means for me and the way I like to do things, but that's not going to work for everybody else. So if I try to impose that on somebody, chances are it's not going to be very effective. Mm-hmm. So like first appointment. Yes. We show up. Yes. And are, are we like sitting on a couch, sitting on a chair? Uh, do you, do you have an opening spiel? Do you, you know? <laughs> sure. Um, what typically happens is there's some initial paperwork that people complete and, um, more so so that I can understand exactly what's going on. And I also want to make sure that each person is safe. So in terms of any suicidality, um, there may be questions related to partner violence, history of, um, psychiatric illnesses, hospitalizations, things like that. Um, and then once you come in the room, you would, I would 
read to you, and we would, and you would read along with me, the informed consent document, which essentially tells you the way that I like to work and what you can expect um, when you're working with me. Hmm. And there's also, um, we discussed fee-for-service, um, what the charge will be when payment's expected, and so on. And then, perhaps most importantly, we discussed confidentiality and the limits of confidentiality. And essentially, that is everything that we discuss in the session remains confidential unless someone's a danger to themselves, someone else, um, in cases of child abuse or elder abuse. Then we're mandated reporters, and all bets are off. So we try to be very um, transparent about that because people have a right to know. Sure. And in addition to that, when you're working with couples in particular, and, and I do a lot of work with behavioral couples therapy, one of the things that we want to do, that we ask with partners, is that we tell them about the, um, no, we call it the no secrets policy. So what that means is, with couples, as you can imagine, sometimes one couple, one partner will call in the middle of the week and say, you know, he's not doing what he's supposed to, or he did this, or he did that. Or one of them may share something that has implications for the relationship to you individually, right? So let's say, for example, one of them tells you that you've been working with them for five or six sessions, and then one of them calls you and says, listen, I need to own up. It's been bothering me. I'm actually having an affair, right? Oh. So it's counterproductive to the work that you're doing. And if you don't have some kind of agreement in place that, um, let's say, with the no secrets policy, what we say is anything that you tell me in between sessions that I think has implications for the work that we're doing in here, I'm going to reserve the right to bring up in the session. I'm going to ask you to bring it up first. But if you don't, I'm going to bring it up. Otherwise, you end up in this very difficult spot where you're harboring somebody's secret. And then you're supposed to continue on with therapy, you know, working toward a goal, which probably isn't meaningful anymore. Yeah. Does that happen a lot? I never even thought of people calling uh, you in it, between it, it, and you saying, know, you know, guess what? <laughs> no, it, it doesn't happen a lot, but um, it does happen. Yeah. And I've also seen it in, um, well, I saw it recently, probably maybe a year or so ago, in one of the outpatient clinics that I was working with, yeah. where somebody did just that. But it was the, the client, the identified client had um, told his individual therapist about it because he was in the couple's treatment plus individual counseling. And he had told his um, individual therapist, but the ther at the clinic they have a treatment team meeting and that came up. So the information they had shared with him up front that everything that um, he talked about in the couple's or the individual session was part of his overall treatment at the clinic, and that information would be discussed at the meetings. So he was aware in advance, and they actually discussed it in the mm -hmm. session. So, But you don't want to... It doesn't happen very often, but you don't want to end up in a position where it does happen and you don't have a good answer for it other than probably, you know, I probably need to refer them out because, you know, it's, we have a faulty sort of contract here. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So just to get back to some of the, the, the basics then, what you do is talk therapy. Yes. And cause I've had questions about this when I've talk to friends and family yeah. members about therapy. There is confusion, I think, still about, you know, do you prescribe medicine? Who yeah, does that? So sure. maybe you could just clarify that too sure. a little bit. There is confusion. And actually I've had more than one, one more than one person say in terms of their initial reluctance to come in, it may be related to like I somebody once said, you know, you're gonna shrink my head. You know, like <laughs> it's that old yeah. sort yeah. of uh, notion of psychiatry. What in general, very simply stated Psychiatrists uh, prescribe medication. Um, if you if you're looking for talk therapy, you would go to a psychologist, a marriage and family therapist, a licensed mental health counselor, um, whoever it may be. But um, 
mental health counselors, marriage and family therapists, and psychologists are going to do talk therapy. A uh, psychiatrist is going to prescribe, is going to diagnose and prescribe. Mm-hmm. So Okay, uh-huh. that's helpful. Yeah. You, so you don't diagnose, but or do you? No, and that's, that, that's a really good point. Um, from a marriage and family therapy perspective, what we're really focusing on is relationships. So we don't diagnose. However, with that said, we have an understanding of it because that's the language that the field is using. Right. So we have to at least have an intelligent ignorance of what everyone around us is doing. But that's not our point of emphasis. Right. Whereas with psychologists, they're going to do more diagnosing. And even mental, mental health counselors tend to focus more on a wellness perspective. But mm-hmm. it, would, it would be similar to the marriage and family therapist where they would, um, they would have an understanding of it. Because many of the jobs that um, people take on, it's required in order to get paid. Right. right? Mm-hmm. In a lot of the clinics, you have to have a diagnosis code in order to be reimbursed by managed care. Mm-hmm. Well, and so this is the, the second time that uh, paying for it came up. So just really quickly, like, can, if I go to family therapy, can I, does Medicaid pay for it? Does private insurance pay for it? Am I going to have to write a check? Great yes, question. yes, and yes, or <laughs> yeah. Ex- well, exactly. What it depends on is um, if you come, if you see a marriage and family therapist. In general, uh, marriage and family therapy is, even though it's been around since the seventies, and there's been a lot of empirical evidence or data to support that it works. It hasn't. It's not as well entrenched as say social work and some of the other disciplines. So many of the insurance companies don't will not accept. Um, marriage and family therapist signature or they won't cover the sessions unless the individual is supervised by a psychiatrist. So it would re- what would end up happening probably is that for a marriage and family therapist, you would end up paying out of pocket. So it would be cash, check, or whatever that, yeah. whatever the individual therapist has set up. With psychologists, they're able to um, get paneled with insurance companies. Mm-hmm. So you can bill um, through the, you can bill through insurance. In how much it would the reimbursement rate varies by insurance. For some for, for some providers and some insurance companies, they will allow you to bill for an out of network service. So you may pay up front, but then you submit your invoices to your insurance company, you get reimbursed. That's really plan specific. Yeah. So you have kids, you're a parent. Yes. Um, so I think you probably understand uh, that you know kids go through phases. Yeah. Um, you know, families go through seasons. Yes. How do you know when you're just in a bad phase or a bad season? Yeah. You know, just a regular old one. Yeah. And then how do you know when it's really time to go to yeah. therapy? That's a great question. As a, as a parent, as a family, or even just to send your child. Mm-hmm. I think when... Hmm, my, I guess there's a couple of answers to this because it's very um, idiosyncratic. But for, I think for most families, when the solutions that you're trying aren't working and you feel like you've exhausted the resources that you have and nothing is getting better, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times what happens is people feel like they've run out of answers and they, they're not sure what to do, where to go. Um, that's when they'll typically make an appointment. Or it may be that this is something that's unfamiliar to me and I need more information on it. So when you asked about that maybe the uh, the parents come in first, or the parent comes in first, maybe he or she is gathering information on, like, this is what's going on. And then as part of that, um, the kids come into the sessions later. Mm-hmm. What, again, to sort of circle back, what we typically find is that, especially with younger kids, 
they're the least powerful players in the system. So it's something that the parent or parents are going to do differently that's going to change. So a lot of times what happens is, you know, kids like structure, but it may be that there's a lack of structure there. And that's not what, that's not the way that mom or dad or who's ever raising a child, that's typical, that's just not their way. It's not in their personality. So maybe something that you're going to work on is helping that person come up with some ideas for how they can implement some structure into the relationship. With the family work that I've done in the past, what I tend to see is that there's, like in, in general, um, in families, there's a power dynamic. And the, it, the relationships are hierarchical. So mom and dad are sort of at the top. And then you've got the kids that are, are beneath them, not way at the bottom, but, but beneath them. Mom and dad are sort of the authority figures. And what happens is that sometimes in an effort to give your kids everything that you want and to be, you know, to, to have your kids like you, if you will, the, the hierarchy gets messed up. And the kids are above the parents in the hierarchy. And now all of a sudden it becomes chaos in the family. And sometimes what needs to happen is for mom and dad to sort of build in some more structure and take some of that power back. Having said that, it can be really challenging when you, as you can imagine, when you first try to do that because that's not what the kids are used to. Mm -hmm. So they're going to push back. And, you know, we often will tell parents, especially, you know, it may get worse before it gets better, but the important thing is that you stick to it. And ultimately what will happen is the child or children will fall in line and you'll see that they'll actually enjoy it or it'll be, it'll be better for everybody in the long run. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot okay. of sense. Um, how... How long do individuals or families typically go to therapy? Well, it depends on what the presenting issue and concerns are and also um, how long they think they need therapy. Yeah. I, I tend to, in the first session, I'll ask people, um, we ask what we call scaling questions. So on a scale of 1 to 10, with things being there at their very, with 1 being there at their very worst and 10 being their perfect, where are you on that scale? So we get a baseline of where they're at. And then I may say later in that first session, so in order for you to think that our work was successful, that it was worthwhile coming to therapy, where do you need to end up on that same scale? And they may say, well, you know, I need to get to a, a six or a seven. And then I can say, so tell me what that looks like. So then I'm going to help them sort of envision what it is that um, will be happening when they know it's time for them to terminate. Mm -hmm. It's okay to terminate. Mm -hmm. So we start right from the very beginning thinking about, you know, it's not a very... In general, it's not a very long-term process. It's more about, you know, what's going on? What can we do differently? What are some ideas? And then how will you know when you're done? Yeah, so. that makes a lot of sense. And, and you know, I'll share this because maybe someone will find it helpful because it kind of clicked with me. But a couple of years ago, I went to see a, um, a counselor about a stressful situation mm -hmm. I was having. And I went for, I think, only th four or five sessions. And... My counselor, um, you know, ended it or, or suggested that we end it, thought, and, and I agreed with him. But he said, you know, if you want to come back for a tune-up, if yes. you're having some trouble <laughs> yeah. with the boundaries yeah. we established, yeah. we can. And it was such a helpful way. It was, yeah. you know, it was, we were coming to a close, but it wasn't this yes. final thing where I was totally done, totally yes. fixed. It just yeah. was a different way of thinking about it. And, and I liked that a lot. So That's great. And it's interesting that you bring that up because one of the things there's a push on in the field right now from thinking about um, mental health treatment as an acute treatment, so somebody comes in for four or five sessions and then that's it and they're done, to viewing it more as a longer-term um, model of care. 
So it may be that you come in for four or five sessions and then maybe six months down the road, there's a booster session mm -hmm. or something so that the effects of it, uh, you know, where you check in, see how things are going, the effects of it are longer and lasting than mm -hmm. what yeah. we typically would have. So yeah, it's interesting. Okay. Help, help us. Um, so maybe someone's convinced like, man, I need to find a marriage and family therapist yeah. and work on this stuff. But, um, I, I don't know. Do you just Google like therapist? What comes next? Because <laughs> I get this question all the time. So there's a couple of answers to this. I think in general, the best, the best way to find a therapist is if you know someone who's gone to a therapist and to ask friends who they really liked. Because at the end of the day, what ends up happening is it's really about the fit. You know, the, the therapist style and orientation with your personality and, you know, does that mesh? Some people like somebody who's more directive and active and takes on more of an expert role, whereas some other people want somebody who can collaborate with them and don't like the idea that this person thinks you know he or she is the expert on my life. So it, it's really an issue of fit. But asking, I have found in my experience, asking other people that you know who have mm -hmm. seen a therapist or who know a therapist, who's somebody really good, you know, who's somebody, or even asking if you know someone who's a therapist, asking. Who would you go to see if you needed help? Mm -hmm. Another thing that you could do is there's oftentimes local psychological organizations or marriage and family counseling organizations, and you could Google them. And on their websites, on the websites, they often have a list of resources where they'll have members' names, providers' names mm -hmm. um, that you can look up and um, contact somebody that way. So you so. just call them up and say, I want to come see you? Mm-hmm. You know, are you taking new patients or new clients? Um, I'm interested in making an appointment. Mm -hmm. So, and typically what happens when you call is that the therapist will ask some preliminary questions just to get a sense of what's going on, make sure the individual's not in crisis, and then schedule an appointment. So, okay. what, how do you break up with a therapist if, if they're not working for you or they're not working for your kid? <laughs> you know, how so, do you do this that? This is such a great question um, for a number of different reasons because we talk about this all the time in my classes. Um, what typically happens, what most people will do is they, they'll go to the sessions and then they'll schedule another appointment and then they cancel and they don't come back. Yeah. Um, Ghosting, I believe it's called. Yes, <laughs> and part of that is that it, it's uncomfortable for everybody. But it's, it's incumbent, what I always tell students is, as a therapist, it's incumbent upon you to make sure that, you, that you're talking about things that the couple, the family wants to talk about. And if it's not working, you sh if it's not working, by the time you as the therapist understands, it has, like you start to have this feeling that I feel like we're spinning our wheels, I guarantee that the, the family or the couple is sitting there thinking the same thing. Yeah. And I always suggest to students to talk about it, to process it. You know, I'm having this feeling, where are you guys at? Are we talking about what we need to talk about? Do you feel like we're making progress? And I think by checking in like that, I usually will do that at, at the end of every session. I'll ask if, if the session was helpful and are we talking about things that, they want, that the couple mm -hmm. wants to talk about. By doing that, you allow the opportunity for them to say to you, well, I feel like we should be talking about something differently or I don't feel like we're making progress. You can change gears and try to better help them. If you don't have that conversation, you run the risk of somebody just not coming back. So as a way to increase and improve retention, I think checking in, as the therapist, checking in to make sure that the, the clients are getting what they want, I mean, that's our ultimate purpose, I think makes sense. 
Having said that, for many therapists, that's a very scary proposition. Yeah, what if yeah. you're a because, client who doesn't have that kind of therapist? Yeah, right, and, and if the just... therapist, or if, if the client says to you, well, no, that's not really helpful, and you fall <laughs> apart, right? Yeah. <laughs> so um, we, w- we certainly wouldn't want that. But at the end of the day, if, if the goal of... If, if the goal for the therapist is to help people reach their goals and to help them get what they're looking for, like th- these are questions that we should be asking. Mm-hmm. Are, are there ever people that, you know, come in for that first appointment and get the ground rules and see what you're working on and start to do stuff and then at the end say, well, you know, I see what it is and we're a bad fit or I don't want to sign up for this, so I'm out now. Um, I haven't seen that in my experience, although it wouldn't. I'm sure that it's happened. And a lot of it is they call it readiness for change. So, and there are various stages of that. So, some people may recognize that there's a problem going on, but may not be ready to sort of own or to, to work on it or own their piece of it. You know, maybe there's a problem, but hey, that's somebody else's problem. I'm fine. I don't need to work on it. So, I think like there is certainly that piece that goes on. Typically, what happens is they're not that explicit about it, they'll come in. They'll hear, you know, what we're going to work or how this is going to work. And then they'll leave and they'll say, oh, my God, I'm never going back there. Yeah. You know, so but it really speaks to where people, their level of commitment to the process and what they want. Mm-hmm. So just a, a couple more questions. Sure. Um, how do you or do you have any advice for families about how to talk about being in therapy? Um, do, should they, I guess, both within their family, you know, should they save up? Things they want to talk about for their session. Well, yeah. How do they talk about it with their yeah. friends and family who are outside yeah. of it? You know, is it sure. should it be a secret? But I think it, de- it depends on the individuals involved. So some people are some people are very open about it and and they feel comfortable sharing it. Other people are very private and they don't want anyone to know. There still is that stigma associated with mental health and seeing a therapist, even though we know that you know. It's a very helpful resource. So it really depends on the individual. As far as how to approach going to see a therapist, my experience has been for people when they try to, again, demystify it as much as possible and to to look at it at its core, which is we're going to go talk to somebody to see if we can help figure this out because obviously it's not working. Once people get to the realization that the current pattern of behavior isn't helpful and isn't working, then they may consider something different. This may be somebody who can help us try to figure this out so that we can all be happier. And, and at the end of the day, that's what they, they want something different, right? Yeah. Even couples that come in and they come in for a period of time, but it feels like they're not making progress or maybe they're not able to articulate what they want. They still want something different. Otherwise they wouldn't be coming to see you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure there's a hundred other other things they could be doing with their time mm-hmm. rather than sitting with a therapist. Mm-hmm. And I guess finally, um, how do you? What's the best way to prepare a, a child for therapy? If you decided, dep- that- it depends on the um, it depends on the age and the developmental stage of the child. So you're going to be able to do more or less depending on how old the child is. Sometimes with teenagers, teenagers will come in or get dragged in by right. mom and dad. And as the therapist, one of the things that you're going to do is try to, we call it joining, but essentially forming a relationship with each person in the room and also trying to figure out what it is, what their his or her goals are. And for some kids, they may not be ready for that. They may not trust you, and understandably so. And I think being respectful of that 
and trying to form that relationship. And when the child or the teenager is ready to talk, you know, he certainly has that, he or she has that opportunity. But if you push too hard, then you just become another um, adult telling some, telling a teenager what they need to do. Yeah, yeah. and they've got so, a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> like, but do you think that it makes sense for parents to be firm about, nope, we're going to this, we're doing this, you know? I think you have to ask, you, you have to think of it in terms of um, what you're going to get out of it. If you, you can win the battle and lose the war. So if you force a child to come in, and he or she doesn't want to be there and then doesn't participate or is actually um, antagonistic in the process, then it may not be helpful. So I think you, it depends on the, the issue. Um, it depends on the child. In general, I think having everybody in the room is really helpful. And even if, even if um, whether it's a child or an adult, even if the person doesn't say anything, this may be the first time that they can hear another person's perception of what's happening. Because mm -hmm. that's really what we're talking about, people's perceptions of what the issues are and how they're happening, right? And it may be that what he or she is considering as nagging is, or has perceived as nagging all this time is really coming from a place of concern and fear, right? We see this a lot with um, when I work with substance abusing couples where the client may perceive it as nagging and it's the partner's concern that, you know, I'm afraid that one of these days I'm going to get a phone call and they're going to tell me that you're dead or you're in jail again. And this is what I live with every day. So that nagging is really born from a place of, you know, I love you and I care about you and I, and I, and I want you to be okay. Mm -hmm. But it's interpreted differently. Right. So having somebody in the room hearing that, I think, sometimes can change the way they view it as well, even though they're not actively participating. Yeah. Does that make sense? It, it does. does. Yeah, it does. So do you have any... Uh, Last words of advice for our listeners or any, any, anything you want to leave them with about family therapy and its benefits? Or I think it's a wonderful resource, and I think that um, it's something that people should be willing to explore and to get more information about and to try out because there's a lot of um, – there's just a lot of mystery around it and what it actually is and how it can help people. and. I have found that the more that you demystify the process and educate people around what's going on, that they often, that many people, in fact, most people probably benefit from it. Mm -hmm. So um, in terms of various treatments out there, especially if the, if the issues are family-based or it's affecting everybody in the system, bringing everybody in um, to talk about it is never a bad thing. Yeah. And in general, I think like you said, the, the average number of sessions that people attend is between six and eight. So it's not like it has to be, I think people automatically sort of jump to that popularized version of Freud or I'm in psycho, you know, psychoanalysis for years and years and years. It's usually not like that. We, we tend to think of it as people are stuck and they just need some help getting unstuck. And then once they get to where they want to be, they move on. Yep. So. Okay. Well, thank you. You're yeah. welcome. Thank really you great. so much. Thanks again. Thanks again, Keith. And hopefully our conversation demystified the idea of therapy just a little bit. And for those of you who are interested, uh, we hope that this provided some helpful ideas about how to get into it. Yeah. And if there's anything related to this topic that you'd be interested in hearing us explore further, you know, maybe marriage counseling in, in more detail, for instance, uh, let us know. Um, so let's get on to our picks for person, place or thing. Drew, what do you got? Uh, I am going to plug another podcast, one that's a lot more popular than ours, but it is 
the Robcast, the po- podcast of Rob Bell. Uh, he is a, a former pastor, now just kind of spiritual teacher via podcast and TV and stuff like that. Um, but he's open and kind to everybody. And uh, you can find his uh, podcast and his writings at robbell.com. His most two recent episodes are uh, God Part 1 and Part 2. And it, yeah, really tricky, uh, really creative with the titles, right? But he talks about uh, our uh, evolving and changing uh, ways about talking about God. Uh, so uh, obviously a, a professional interest for me, but uh, really interesting for folks of, of kind of any background. And Whitney, uh, you have, I think, a thing this week. I do have a thing. Um, so mine is the blog slash Facebook page um, called Raising Race Conscious Children. You can find the the website at raceconscious.org, and there's a link on their Facebook page there, too. Um, it's really a terrific resource for parents who want ideas and help navigating topics related to, to race and ethnicity, so definitely relevant to what we were talking about you know, earlier in the episode. Um, the site is geared towards white people, but as they say on their site, the strategies discussed could be helpful for everybody. Um, I am a white parent, and I have found the resources they offer and share to be really helpful um, as I sort of, you know, continue to unpack my privilege and understand how I fit in, um, you know, in the in the fight for racial justice. So they offer, um, they offer webinar workshops for parents to take as individuals or as a group. I haven't done it yet, but I really, really want to. Um, I was actually going to see if, if maybe Drew and his family wanted to do it with us um, sometime. But anyway, um, they, they offer workshops for parents. And they have this really active Facebook page. Whoever is updating it just does this excellent job of finding, you know, timely and topical um, you know, things to post and share. And, and I just think it's great. So a couple of their recent posts include talking about Thanksgiving um, and its sort of history and popular narrative with your kids. And then also some advice on talking to your kids about, about the recent terrorist attacks. So it's really good stuff. I like it a lot. I will check it out myself. Okay, so that's it for today. As always, you can email us with your thoughts on the show or your ideas for future topics to justafazepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to everyone who has already made suggestions. Um, we've really got some great ones, as we've mentioned before. Keep them coming. And you can always check us out at justafazepodcast.tumblr.com, where we will post links to episodes and resources that come up during our discussions. And finally, um, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and rate a review. The reviews um, help other people find us and just sort of you know, boost our presence uh, um, on iTunes. And we're also available on Stitcher for those of you with Androids, and you can leave us love there, too. Just a Phase podcast is produced by Whitney Crispell. The theme music is Urbana Metronica Woo Yeah Mix by Spinning Merkaba, <laughs> and it is used under a Creative Commons license. Oh, we love that. We love the name of that. All right, happy Thanksgiving, Drew, and happy Thanksgiving to everybody listening. Happy Thanksgiving, Whitney. 